coming up on Life is a Festival. A good maxim is just that notion of no matter what, like stay awake, build stuff, and help out. So the staying awake, like the thing is, is that because we've kind of done an end run on access to techniques of ecstasy, right? So since the 60s, right, the Pandora's box has been open. We have more access to more radical state changing technologies than any humans ever on the planet, full stop, right? And because of that, we've gone a little kind of cross-eyed and drooling, right? Staring at the burning bush or jerking off in front of the burning bush, whatever we're fucking doing right now, right? There's been an obsession on that. And we've actually completely upended the normal path and process. If you look to all the traditions, they were always quite rigorous. There was all sorts of gates and initiations and steps you had to take before you had access to the Holy of Holies. And now we're just bum rushing the temple. And as a result, we are bringing through way more information and inspiration than we have the capacity to actually put on the ground. So going back to, you know, rocket ship rides with 5-MeO or any asymmetrically high bandwidth or frame rate mode of getting, you know, on otherworldly information, we don't need more of it. We need to bring home more of it. And, and the best way to describe that is making art. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Hello, my fellow travelers and potentially my fellow lizard brain fuck monkeys. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be one of those episodes. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. Um, I'm your host, Eamon Armstrong. Today, we're talking to Jamie Wheel. This is his fourth appearance on the podcast. This far outstrips any of my other guests, but you see Jamie has produced a marvelous new book, and I just I really want everyone to read it, so I figured get him back on the show and let's talk about it. It's called Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind. I jest about the lizard brain fuck monkey thing, but it's a term he uses to describe a kind of hedonistic relationship to peak experiences. And I don't know about y'all, but this term certainly has applied to me in my life. Jamie does such a marvelous job of laying the smackdown but with this poetic, charming, playful tone. And I just find it so useful. As you may recall, if you've been listening to the podcast, Jamie invited me to do a wilderness first responder training, which I did and got a great deal out of. It's been beautiful to watch his thinking continue to evolve, particularly when it comes to psychedelic medicine and transformational culture generally. And this book is extraordinarily important right now in this moment as our world continues to teeter on the brink. So on today's show, Jamie and I talk about the Pareto effect for peak experiences. That's that 80-20 rule. Protocols for global nervous system reboot. The unintentional outcomes of intentional communities. 
designing vibrant, anti-fragile, transformative culture. P.S. There's just going to be a lot of words <laughs> in this in this podcast, but it's cool. I mean, I think that you're all brilliant people. You'll follow along. We also discuss the sexual yoga of becoming a homegrown human and a DNA Jesus fish. So above all, this is a conversation about building an open sourced operating system for transformational culture. And I think you'll agree once you hear the program, and certainly if you've read Recapture the Rapture, that Jamie has a pretty good blueprint that brings actually a lot of optimism. So I think you'll enjoy it. Jamie is the best-selling co-author of Stealing Fire. He is the founder of the Flow Genome Project. He's a dear friend of the show and also taught me how to wakeboard for the first time. Um, His new book, Recapture the Rapture, Rethinking God, Sex, and Death in a World That's Lost Its Mind, is really a must read for those of us who explore psychedelic realms, for anyone who wants to build an intentional community, and for anyone who just wants a little optimism about our ability to affect change in this world because he does lay out that possibility and invites us all to get in line. So without further ado, here is my friend and yours, Jamie Wheel. Jamie, welcome back to Life is a Festival. This is the fourth time that we are having a conversation on this show, far outstripping all other guests. I wonder why, wonder why I just keep wanting to talk to you. <laughs> well, that's funny, because let's think, I remember, I remember the one at your apartment in San Francisco, and then I think we did something someplace on Clubhouse, but I don't remember who's, was, was that one that... So counting as well. We did the one in San Francisco, and that was kind of the big one. And that's yeah. actually one of my most popular podcasts all around. That one moved around a lot in the Burning Man community. Then we did one for Burners Without Borders for the mm. multiverse, nice. which we which then I put on the show. And then we did a clubhouse that was part of what we were doing with Alex Ebert mm-hmm. and, the, and the spiritual narcissism conversation. But now you've written Recapture the Rapture. And just full disclosure to people listening, I wanted to have this conversation because I want people to read this book. And I spent the week with this book, and I've been spending some time with your thinking on these matters for a while. But the book does an incredible job of really synthesizing and moving at a pretty fast clip the urgency of the present moment and what we actually can do about it. And while the very beginning kind of bummed me out a little bit because the word... <laughs> <laughs> That's the ripping the Band-Aid off. Yeah, the oh. Band-Aid ripping got oh. a lot. Yeah, definitely. But it moved pretty quickly into kind of an optimistic stance and, and a series of protocols, like actual protocols, not just about how we envision the future or even how we manage our own hedonic calendar, which you've spoken about before, how we manage our use of peak experience, but also how we can form communities that are actually sustainable generative and create the future that we want. So it's, it's, it's quite a blueprint. So I wanted to have you on the show today just to talk about this book. And full disclosure to those listening, I really just want, <laughs> I just want people to read this book because there's so much in it that I think is directly applicable to our lives right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean for sure, any, any good set of ideas is, are more fun to share, right? And, and my hope for this book is that it serves as kind of a bridge across the river, or you know, uh, or if you're thinking of like Mount Everest and things like that, a ladder across the crevasse, right? Of of 
where have we come from, you know, what's going on, and what do we do now? Because there's an awful lot of sort of rainbow wheels of death. There's a lot of spinning wheels right now as we try to get traction, as we try to make sense of those core questions, like what on earth is going on and what's coming next, and therefore what ought we do? And so hopefully if this book can tackle some of those ones, and not in a definitive prescriptive way, not saying this is what's happening and this is what you should do, but saying here's ways to think about and bracket and assess things sort of dynamically and, and hopefully gracefully and, and, and constructively, then we can all get to the other side and we can start doing more on the building and creating the future we want. So who is this book for? Because it, it's definitely not for a general audience. It gets really deep <laughs> on topics that I feel like you ha- need some familiarity with the landscape to really wrap your head around. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's kind of a sort of, there's an exoteric and then an esoteric audience for this. You know, so the, the exoteric would be a little bit more along the lines of who's the kind of quote unquote every man or every woman that could lean into this and get something out of it. And then there's kind of the sort of by us, for us, core community that it's maybe speaking straight down the pipes of their experience. So, I mean, without a doubt, I would say the esoteric core community, people engaged in high potency techniques of ecstasy, personal change, consciousness, expansion and exploration and integration. Because, you know, and and you you could say a nexus of that is the sort of Burning Man community, the psychedelic renaissance, transformational culture, you know, those sort of necks of the woods. It has, it overlaps with polyamory and kind of adventurous and non-conforming sexuality and relational formats and explorations. It it also into existential risks, everything from extinction rebellion to deep adaptation. It kind of covers, yeah, I would say, I would say a broad swath, you know, into neuroanthropology, you know, and, and sort of like Yuval Harari and Sapiens and, and things like that, sort of what is the structure of being a monkey with clothes and, and how, do we, how do we pass that experience? So for sure, psychonauts, explorers, and folks leaning into the edge of the future. And then for a more mainstream audience, hopefully it's a little bit, I mean, David Data said, he said, he said, you know, if, if, Alistair Crowley hired Malcolm Gladwell as his ghostwriter. This is the book they'd write. Ooh, I like that combination because right. I think either of them alone has their limit. That's a bit like Roger Waters and David Gilmore. Mm-hmm. You know, like you've got you've got something to ensconce the message, and then some of the weird. You need like some kind of balance. Yeah. So I mean, in in, in the simplest, this is a twenty first century Western narrative nonfiction accounting and presentation of thousands of years of mystic, ecstatic, death, rebirth protocols with a layer of neuroscience and developmental psychology unpacking it. So in some respects, it's sort of the Ark of the Covenant decoded. And I, and I don't mean that in a sort of overblown way. I just mean in a sort of straightforwardly matter-of-fact way, but precisely because it is straightforward and matter-of-fact we no longer have to get wrapped around the axles of fixating on any specific interpretation of those otherworldly states or experiences. And we don't need to presume that others will see what we see when we go there. So it's, sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a postmodern or meta-constructural way to get at the sacred, to get at the ineffable, but to 
as we kind of shuttle back and forth beyond those states more and more frequently and more and more precisely, we stop obsessing on them, romanticizing them, fetishizing them. And we're just like, oh, this is just a rad, super valuable zone or domain of additional knowing. And we can, if we can, integrate those experiences into our waking embodied day-to-days, then we become more resilient, more inspired, more resourceful, better connected, and therefore better able to do this human thing. Not that we're going to transmigrate to the fifth dimension or density, not that we're going to get beamed up by the mothership, not some escapist fantasy, which I would argue is fundamentally juvenile and half-baked no matter what the rapper is, but to actually show up back in our lives with a fierce but tender commitment to all of, to the least of our brothers and sisters and to this little garden planet that we call home. Yeah, it's that piece on the least of our brothers and sisters that is so important right now, particularly in the communities that you've been referring to, most especially for me in the Burning Man community and this sort of travel the world, have powerful peak experiences, and then at a certain point you can get kind of, as you've, you've referred to it as an ontological addiction to coming back to this well of meaning and that there's something that's really asymmetric about that kind of development. And so you can overdevelop in a kind of grab bag of spiritual experiences, but ultimately not really have anything to come home with and get sort of stuck in, I think on our last podcast, you, you talked about like a spiritual cul-de-sac mm-hmm. or um, thinking that you're in the Grail Castle, but actually you're in Hotel California. This sort of like endless loop, which is very much... I see, I've seen in my own life, we've talked about this before, I've seen around me this kind of like puerta turnus, <laughs> not wanting to grow up, not even knowing how to grow up, and substituting these potentially sort of exotic spiritual experiences as if they were sort of like rungs on a ladder to some kind of becoming rather than a kind of smorgasbord that we don't really know what we actually need to consume to enrich our lives. We're just sort of taking pieces here and there and here and there. And in the book, in Recapture the Rapture, you talk about the Pareto effect. Mm-hmm. And this was very compelling to me. Can you, can you share a little bit about that? Sure. So, I mean, everybody knows that as the 80-20 principle, right? You, you know, you wear 20% of the clothes in your wardrobe, 80% of the time, you know, all those things, right? And it, it does seem that in relationship, it also applies to peak states, so what will happen, and you can go to a circling workshop or to orgasmic meditation or to Vipassana or to a burn or whatever it would be, or your first MDMA experience, take your pick, just you know, fill in the blank on the kind of menu of ecstatic technologies. And those first few experiences will typically give you that first 20% of exposure to that practice or, or domain of inquiry will often deliver 80% of the insights, growth, and healing you're ever going to get from it. But you don't know that. You just dip your toe into the water for that 20% and get your socks blown off. And you get 80% insight, epiphany, healing, breakthrough, and you're like, oh my God, and you think it's linear. So you're like, at this rate, I'll be enlightened in no time. So you keep chasing it, you keep chasing it, you keep chasing it, you go back to the wishing well again and again, thinking you're on a linear growth curve, but you're not, you're on a dwindling bell curve. And then you end up spending... 80% more time and money and effort and and attention and even obsession just to wring out that last 20% of what your, of your imagined perfectibility. But so so not only just mathematically is that upside down, right? You know I mean? It's far better to just do the 20% to get your 80 and get in, get out and remember. 
and go do stuff. But it's also based on a fundamentally flawed assumption that we can actually get to perfect. We can actually get to fully awake. We can actually get to some place where all of the things and all of the dissatisfactions and frustrations and the shit it could have might have been of my earthbound misfit life will somehow evaporate. And then I'll get my hashtag best life, big car, big, big house, rockin' spouse, all the things. And, you know, that's been programmed into us for over a century. You know, Tony Robbins was not the first, right? Hillsong Church, not the first, right? The entire world of 20th century marketing came out of four failed evangelical preachers. So like literally we're so baked in the, you're not perfect yet, but there's a happy hill you can get to if only you put a 20 in the collection plate or buy Listerine or get the new dishwasher or, you know, we, we, we just completely ported the entire Judeo-Christian redemption song promise. You know, you are, you, are, you are fallen with original sin and there's a place for redemption downstream. We just swapped church for consumption. So we're incredibly conditioned as fragmented, rational, isolated individuals to believe that our wholeness lies on the other side of purchase. And, and it can be workshops, it can be experiences, it can be any of those things. And it's just such an overwhelmingly well-worn rut. <laughs> you know, it's like the wagon wheels going to the Oregon, on the Oregon Trail, like they're still there. And we just slot into them like gutter balls if we're not paying attention. And so just to check that fallacy too, you know, that, that there is no, it, you know, our perfectibility is, is much closer to the horizon line. It's something you can all, it's always there and you can always be sailing towards it, but you never get there. And that's okay. That's actually not something to be dispirited about or to succumb to addiction or compulsion about, but to actually embrace fully as the secret within the secret. You know, it's that Dolly Parton thing of like, you know, ain't no, ain't no saint without a past Ain't no sinner without a future. Like, this is our condition. <laughs> and when we stop trying to escape it, we're off the hook of our neurotic, egoic seeking, right? We're actually here. This is it. But we're on the cross, right, of bearing witness to this human condition that is both agony and ecstasy, right? And rips us in two. There's no way to hold the amount of grief in our own personal lives or collectively in the world without the ecstasy. You know, which in you know in the book playfully call it like the bliss fuck crucifixion. Like because we do have access to neck snapping, orgiastic white light bliss. Right? And and it has connections to our erotic wiring and neural circuitry and all those things. It is absolutely the bliss fuck. Right? Which which obliterates selfhood and restores us to the womb of healing connection and belonging but you know at the cost of bearing witness and testifying to that which we've been shown which is also heart-wrenching and and that feels like you know that's that that notion of you know on that cross between sacred and mundane time is that is the realization and potentially the initiation that our humanity, right, lies at the exact crossroads, the intersection of our divinity that we can glimpse sometimes, and our mortality that we can't escape no matter how hard we try. And I just, I just find that there's, there's a bittersweet, grounded beauty to that versus the 
Tower of Babel, the Jacob's Ladders, all the things we try and fucking construct out of rickety materials, duct tape and bailing wire to get the hell out of Dodge versus coming home to fully be present for ourselves and everyone around us. The first podcast we did, we went really deep on kind of exposing what was so problematic about aspects of Burning Man and transformational culture. And what, what you've now referred to in this book as a lizard brain fuck monkey, <laughs> which I read the book and I was like, oh yeah, no, I'm that. I'm the lizard brain fuck monkey. The kind of like the, the hedonic fixation on these kind of peak experiences. So we, we really went through that in that previous podcast and, and exposed mm-hmm. what was so problematic about that. Uh-huh. What's great about this book is that it's not just a, okay, this is wrong, stop doing this, or like, here's what's problematic about it. It's actually a blueprint for doing something different. The book's broken up into three chapters. Choose Your Own Apocalypse lays out the case that we're in. And I particularly liked the last chapter, and we might touch on that as we're chatting. Part two is the Alchemist Cookbook, which is basically like actually breaking down how to approach these peak experiences and what factors go into them so that you're, you're really getting your most out, most out of it. So you're not necessarily just grabbing in the dark for I'll try this and then I'll build my own narrative about it. And then the final one is ethical cult building, which brings us to what it means to do this in community. So it's actually a blueprint. And I think that people would be interested, just as kind of a precursor to reading the book, in terms of the Alchemist Cookbook, you're basically talking about this kind of hedonic engineering where you actually know what you're trying to get to and what tools historically have been applicable to getting to these peak states. And I think that's a far cry from this kind of like chasing ceremony experience of like, I just want to do more. I want the experience. I want, I want an Instagram shot with my combo dots on my shoulder. I'm not saying I've not done that. Um, <laughs> the Alchemist Cookbook. So you break down into five different categories, these vehicles for ecstatic states. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's quite a beautiful exploration of them historically. Like I loved how many beautiful stories are in this book. If someone were to want to enter into an exploration of peak state for inspiration, healing, and connection, mm-hmm. and you, they were looking at that 20% to really get the most bang for their buck, mm-hmm. where would you broadly direct them to look? I mean, fundamentally, I mean, look, there's, there's, a, there's a gajillion ways these days to get access to those states. Some of them are very high-tech, very expensive, hard to find, rare, exclusive. There's, there's, there's lots of different ways into this territory because I think one of the key things is for people to, is to decouple our fixation on which door we go through. Is it combo? Is it breath work? Is it orgasmic meditation? Is it dance parties? Is it whatever? Is it transcranial magnetic stimulation or, you know, or some other form of biotech? And just realize, oh, these all interact with our bodies and brains. They produce certain consistent signatures. We now have the tools and methodologies to track and map these. So we can now understand the secret behind the secret. Right? We can understand, oh, actually, if you want to architect a reliable death-rebirth initiation experience, and this would be analogous to you know, indigenous traditions of shamanic death, dismemberment, rebirth or the Lucinian mysteries in ancient Greece or any of this, any of the stories. I mean, was it, was it, who was it? Fuck. I want to say it's, oh, it's Trungpa. I think he said, die before you die. Right. That, that notion that if you take a kind of comparative religious survey of the world, you realize, oh shit, man, death, rebirth practices have, have been everywhere forever. 
right? It's pretty much how we have access to healing, inspiration, and connection, but also philosophy, technology, religion, mythology. It's pretty much like where we get all of our stuff to build civilization. It's the sort of Promethean Stargate. And that potentially for the first time, and I, I mean, and, and, I, and I hesitate to make the claim that this is the first time it's ever been put in writing, but I haven't seen it any place else in just simple, straightforward, 21st century, Western rational empirical scientific language. So it's everywhere in the traditions. It's just wrapped in metaphor, analogy, story, you know, and with, with, you know, seven times more bells and whistles than are actually the functional mechanisms of action, right? So it comes bundled in mythology, even though there have been, there have been functional technologies. But in a nutshell, the game to play is how can I explore basically polyphasic spectrum of consciousness versus monophasic, like one channel. So we got stuck in the last 100 years, last 300 years, you know, sort of French Enlightenment, Western empiricism, five senses, touch, taste, feel, if you can't measure it, doesn't exist. That world was one channel of awareness, right? And it has a very specific signature. It's, it's high-frequency beta waves in our brain. It's what we're doing talking to each other and what folks are doing listening. Prefrontal cortical activity, strong executive function. Quite often, especially these days, some sort of threshold hypervigilance response, you know, of like norepinephrine and cortisol, kind of perpetual fight flight, you know, over, just overstressed and overstimulated. Typically, shitty air exchange. We're not breathing deliberately or intentionally. We've got, you know, poor air exchange and probably a little more CO2, you know, too much CO2 or not enough CO2, depending on how we're responding, like hunched posture fixed mindset instead of a growth mindset, you know, never really deeply present, always booting out to like painful past or fearful futures or fantastic futures or, or, or perfect past. We're, we're very rarely here in the deep now. So like that's kind of us most of the time with a rusted radio dial stuck on this channel of consciousness. And the death rebirth protocols, and that's a clunky term. I just haven't, I mean, it's just, it's descriptive. So let's just, we'll just keep using it is basically saying, okay, now if you can slow down your brainwaves, from beta to alpha and then to theta. And then really the place I've been doing a ton of research and super fascinated by is even deeper than that to delta, which is barely, it's hopping a skip from brain dead. You're at 0.1 hertz to 4 hertz with cyclic activity in your brain. You, you can get there? Yeah. It's you possible can, to get there? Well, we get there every night in deep and dreamless sleep, but we haven't really been exploring or mapping waking delta or lucid dream delta, like how do you get into that state and then report back fundamentally, right? Um, REM is, is, is typically actually closer to kind of beta wave activity, but we're frozen as we dream, right? But, but something I noticed studying everything from 5-MEO studies to Carl Dyseroth study at Stanford on ketamine and dissociative experiences and its impact on depression to this MIT study on nitrous oxide, all these things as you're like, oh, wow, if you can stimulate the brain stem, in fact, including you know sublingual or translingual electrical stimulation, if you can get to the brain stem, right, you can knock out higher order, more complex functioning in your brain, and you get to literally kind of a an entire global nervous system reboot. It's like putting the you know hitting the on off button on your laptop when it's glitching. Wait, would that mean that if you're able to do that when you talk about a brain stem reset, mm -hmm. would that release like trauma in your body, yes. clear out yes. some like, it, it, is that like a button you can press? Can yes. you actually just yes. clear it out? Have you done that? All the fucking time. It's how we live. It's how I wrote this book. How, so, do, you, how do you do it? 
Well, I mean, so so we now well, let, let me finish the protocol, okay. and then and then let's get into like ways to do it, right? So we talked about how do you get from high frequency agitated beta activity to lower states, right? So either way down into delta or the also the opposite, like way up into gamma, which is super high frequency, but that's typically a less stable waveform. So it kind of exists for like bursts of sort of aha integrative insight. But let's just say high and low, not middle, right? And then can you also meaningfully boost vagal nerve tone? So a lot of folks are more familiar with that, but I think just want to flag for everybody, Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory is in fact a theory that is not fact and not broadly agreed on within the scientific community. So it's a fascinating theory, TBD, on whether that is canon, right? But nonetheless, the vagal nerve, which runs from our brainstem, right? So it, it lives in there all the way down to our root, right? Is a profound metronome of our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. So typically we have poor tone and we end up with inflammation, anxiety, stress, et cetera. And when we have deep vagal nerve tone, we end up in a position of equanimity, stress discharge and resilience. So increase that, increase dopamine, endorphins, anandamide, because anandamide as most folks know is, is known as the bliss molecule. It's our interior or endogenous endocannabinoid. So it is the thing that our body creates like endorphins and like dopamine that exo, you know, dopamine is most often correlated with something like cocaine or sugar, right? It's a quick hit of like salience and pleasure and yes, re reward. Endorphins are our internal opioids. So in place of morphine or, or oxycontin and anandamide is in place of cannabis. And in fact, it's, 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 it comes infinitely sooner right? All animals on this planet, all the way back to ancient sea sponges 550 million years ago, all have endocannabinoid receptor sites. So it's a fluke of botany that this five-fingered weed that first grew on the Tibetan plateau like 23 million years ago happens to fit lock and key into a primate nervous system that has those receptor sites waiting for it. So Michael Pollan said, he said, he said cannabis soothes man's mind in order to borrow his legs. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. and that's how that diaspora happened. So it's a fluke. It's not to say, "Yay, weed is awesome." It's to say, "Oh, holy shit, our endocannabinoid system is awesome." Weed is just one external that we can use to prompt it. But runners high, people often thought that was endorphins. It's not. It's endocannabinoids. Endocannabinoids. Anandamide is released during orgasm. It's released during hard workouts and endurance sports. It's released during. It's, it's released during kink and BDSM. Right, and then and then throw in fascia open rib cages, spinal columns, mobile pelvis, all these things. And you're like, oh, wow, we can actually treat our lived experience, you know, bodies and brains plus hearts and minds. So our subjective and our physiological, we can just treat ourselves like what's, what's the human user manual? Minus taboo, minus custom, minus culture. Just how does this thing work that we've been gifted with for seven or eight decades? And you realize, oh, we can basically load up and charge up our nervous system. We can then release energy and you can, you can, you can layer in energy into our system via you know, movement and touch, palpation, massage, theragun, percussive massage. You can do it with sound, standing in front of a function one or lying on a vibroacoustic bed. You can, so you can do it with vibration. You can do it with orgasm. You can do it with pain, 
right? There's a whole, you can, you can do it with electromagnetic stimulation, but energy, right, through this nervous system, load it, so it basically the, the orgasmic crest or peak, right? So, so sort of load it, load it, load it, pinnacle release, refractory period. And with that, you end up with a global systemic reboot. You end up with, oh, my, my windows on my laptop were glitching. Things weren't loading right. I'd had it open for a week with way too many tabs, which is you know a solid metaphor for most of our lives right now. And instead, you turn it off, you reboot it, and you get back to homeostasis. So you defrag our nervous system. You, and I mean, and I'm using the occasional computer analogy. There's all sorts of flaws with correlating the human experience with mechanical computers, blah, blah, blah. So yes, and it's a decent shorthand for folks to think in. And you basically, you know, not only do you get to discharge micro PTSD, like just the day-to-day stressors, but if you have enough of a peak experience or you have enough of a deliberate mending and, he- and healing environment, particularly with support, people to talk to, that kind of stuff, you can actually go deeper into more historic, deeper trauma. And then you kind of come back to level. You come back to center. You're zero, zero on your grid again instead of up on up and left field, right? And it doesn't let us off the hook for Monday morning. It doesn't let us off the hook for how on earth do we be husbands, wives, lovers, parents, you know, workers, employees, entrepreneurs. It doesn't let us off the hook for a lick of the human condition, which is really, really important. <laughs> but what it does do is it gives us the chance to basically say, this I remember, right? Because those experiences aren't content neutral. It's not like you do just sort of become unconscious and dip, dip into a coma and then pop back up an hour later and go, oh, okay, I'm ready to go back to work. Those experiences are immensely and, and often profoundly rich with meaning and insight. So we get to say, ah, yes, right, this I remember. And today I begin again, right? Just t- today I'm on my feet, I'm in my skin with an open heart and a clear head. And, you know, God bless it, right? Qu- quite often with an absolutely clarified sense of what's mine to do and what work is and, and, and what homework I still have to accomplish. Well, and so there's a sharp contrast between what you are identifying with the Pareto effect of like chasing after these experiences, chasing after healing, building a big story about it mm-hmm. versus understanding the mechanics of accessing these places and then accessing them in a sort of organized, focused way for the sake of a purpose rather than in the idea that you might kind of transcend the human experience. And I think that contrast is extremely important because it's so intoxicating and socially validated to be having the big exotic experience, the 5D download, to know the big story, to be the hero in the big story Mm -hmm. versus we have work to do and time is running out. Mm -hmm. So we need to optimize ourselves to do that work. We do get our own insights and experiences that, that are very personal, but there's a way to hold those insights and experiences and not turn them into a mythic story that we are the hero of that simply propels more consumptive transformative experience versus like having something like what you refer to as hedonic engineering Mm -hmm. in this book where we have breath work, we have sexuality, we have substances, 
we have uh, embodiment, we have music, and we can look at these ingredients, find what works best for us, and be able to renew and refresh ourselves, not for the sake of arriving at some (laughs) healed, absolute, triumphant place, or for being of a story of doing that, but rather we weave these practices and these tools into our lives so that we can then build the kinds of communities that are gonna be resilient and actually turn the tide in terms of our, of our dying planet to the degree that we can. Would you say that that's an accurate assessment? Yeah, I mean, 100%. I mean, a, a good maxim is just that notion of no matter what, like stay awake, build stuff, and help out. So the staying awake, like the thing is, is that because we've kind of done an end run on access to techniques of ecstasy, right? So since the 60s, right, the Pandora's box has been open. We have more access to more radical state-changing technologies than any humans ever on the planet, full stop, right? And because of that, we've gone a little kind of cross-eyed and drooling, right? Staring at the burning bush or jerking off in front of the burning bush, whatever we're fucking doing right now, right? There's been an obsession on that. And we've actually completely upended the normal path and process. If you look to all the traditions, they were always quite rigorous. There was all sorts of gates and initiations and steps you had to take before you had access to the Holy of Holies. And now we're just bum rushing the temple. And as a result, we are bringing through way more information and inspiration than we have the capacity to actually put on the ground. So it's like, you know, you've got a Ferrari and now you're running, you're like, whoa, this is a 500 horsepower engine, but like you've got a rubber band for the transmission. The rubber, the, the transmission is rubber to the road, right? What do I do in the real world, in my life with all this? And because, so the weak link isn't like, oh, we've got a 500 horsepower Ferrari engine, let's see if we can get it to 650. Let's see if we can add a nitrous oxide canister to it like they did in Fast and the Furious. And let's see if we can go even faster. No, you'll melt the engine block. And more to the point, like your little rubber band, (laughs) right, of the transmission, of putting rubber on the road, of actually doing something with it, is going to snap in the first second. So going back to, you know, rocket ship rides with 5-MEO or, 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 you know, or, or, or just you name it, right? Any asymmetrically high bandwidth or frame rate mode of getting you know, on otherworldly information, we don't need more of it. We need to bring home more of it. And, and the best way to describe that is making art, right? Like, like, like in the, in the, you know, Neil Gaiman did that great graduation address where he talks about that. He's, he's, like, he's like, when your cat explodes, make good art. When your husband or wife divorces you or disowns you, make good art. When people on the internet slam you or troll you, make good art. No matter what, make good art. And, and by art, it doesn't necessarily mean a, a big oil painting, right? It's, you can make a case like a, the broadest definition of art that works, that gives us all a way to play, right? Is simply anything which is in opposition to the second law of thermodynamics and entropy, right? Anything that isn't just degrading into chaos over time. And I've, and I've shared this before, but, but I find it such a sweet story, you know? But in, in World War II, there was that advent of the graffiti that GIs used to draw on walls and barns and random places like crazy tight little hull spots on the ships. And it was Kilroy was here and it was just this little dude with his hands and then a big nose and a big head, just an easy pencil sketch. Anybody could draw it, but then they'd write Kilroy was here. And he kind of became this sort of mythic figure of, of graffiti during the war. And you're like, oh, that's, 
so bittersweet. Like these are 17, 18, 19 year old boys. They're fucking terrified. They have no idea if they're going to be alive this time next sunset. But they're writing that thing. They're saying, I was here, right? Like, like I, the everyman, Kilroy was here. We, we exist. And so art could just be anything that expresses the good, the true, or the beautiful in some form of enduring artifact. And it could be a garden. It could be raising children to the best of our abilities. It could be cutting flowers and having them on your dining room table. It could, it could be a great American novel. It could be a beautiful song. It, I mean, art could be anything that is just a testament to we're here. You know, we're here bearing witness and we choose. We choose goodness, truth, and beauty. And that can become, that's such a, that's such a grounding and practical thing. And, and, and the same with so many of our friends who are like, you know, crazy smart super geniuses in the existential risk, you know, space of like what's happening with all, with our metasystemic crisis and let's map and model all the different ways and then let's rebuild human governance and civilization from scratch, you know, because we can think God about God bless them. God bless them. Yeah, God bless them. And I, I, at least for me, I am increasingly agitated and disinterested staying in these conversations much longer. It feels like, hey, got it, got it. We, we, we know enough to be dangerous. Like, let's, let's put down our laser pointers, you know, and pick up some shovels and some rakes and some hoes and some saws and some hammers. Let's, let's just start building. Because like my, my business partner is a uh, former SEAL Team 6 commander. So he has, he's, and he was leading their entire operations in East Africa and like wild and crazy places. And he would often, he said, we, forever we had this back and forth between the analysts, right? That the sort of the zero dark 30, you know, super quants like mapping and modeling. And they'd be like, well, you can't do this and you can't do that. And he'd be like, dude, we're going out tonight. Pick the least crazy thing. We're going to go do it, right? And he was able to create profound connectivity for the, for the forces of good in humans in that region simply because he's like, we're going to act. It's going to be imperfect. We're never going to, and this is not that dissimilar, to the other side of like the perfectibility of my seeking my spiritual <laughs> spiritual states. It's like, hey, we're actually, like this isn't radically complex what we need to do as humans right now. It's just hard. And the first thing we need to do is actually ground in places where we live in community and actually build viable, sustainable systems and structures and do it trying to be as good as possible to each other, do it with a minimum of bloviating and over-processing. I mean, I actually, I just got an email this morning from the founders of Extinction Rebellion and they were just sharing their world, which is effectively, here we are trying to take this weird, scary, controversial stand on behalf of humans on this planet and we're completely getting wrapped around the axle of intersectionality and process, you know, and that's, a, that's another version. You've got the kind of X-risk, super quant, smarty pants, you know, just mapping and modeling to the nth degree. You've got folks down on the sort of side of acute sensitivities to process and inclusion. And then you've got the folks pursuing their sort of the mirage of their perfectibility on spiritual transcendence and sort of in some respects, all of them are mildly dissociated from the situation at hand, which is let's just, let's 
you know, it's, it's the Plato's thing of don't let the, the perfect become the enemy of the good. I think it's absolutely essential that we recalibrate from pursuit of the perfect to let's get cracking, friends and neighbors, <laughs> right? Good enough is going to be more than good enough shortly. So we're moving into a conversation here about what we can do and about mm-hmm. communities to do them. I feel like you did a marvelous job in the book of creating some blueprints around community, particularly mm-hmm. through the lens of a cult. And I think a lot of folks listening, people who've been very interested in the transformational festival scene post-COVID are looking at living in community mm-hmm. and these you know, intentional communities. And as you've just sort of mapped out, there's so many sort of rabbit holes you can get into about creating that. Mm-hmm. What I think you did really well is how you have a series of checklists to identify whether you're going off the rails in certain ways, mm-hmm. particularly whether the thing you're trying to build is going to turn into a cult, mm-hmm. which I think is a very important thing because they seem to often do that. You, you talked about the sort of Promethean figure is so often turned into this sort of otherworldly being, someone who brings great information, and that we actually need to take these Promethean heroes and actually democratize that and make it all just more ordinary. And it was actually kind of a relief to look at all of this as like, let's just make it all ordinary and accessible. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what we really all need right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, there are, I mean, and I learned this the hard way, right? Because I, you know, if, if you study history and you do, you see, you know, for certainly the historic ones, the Lao Tzu's and the Buddha's and the Zoroaster's and the Jesus's and all the folks, right? Who were anomalous breakthrough humans back in the day, right? What the, the level of consciousness that they glimpsed or, or attained was rare and remarkable and damn near impossible to replicate. They almost all kind of got there with some quantum leap, you know, some like I was just doing my thing and I was either lost in the wilderness or I, you know, or I sat on a mountain or I did a, I did something, some series of events or lucky epiphanies and then bamo. And so those folks got put on very high pedestals, right? I mean, we literally shaped world religions around them for centuries and millennia. But these days I think it is less remarkable and we actually know how to bring more people through to those states and places. Now, stabilizing it, integrating it, doing all those things. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say as tricky as ever, but definitely tricky. And, and our lives are getting more complex, you know, exponentially more complex as we're figuring this shit out, right? So the, put, the, the pedestal or the pit is kind of the unstable dynamic, right? That when somebody breaks through and has some profound charismatic insight, we see it instantly. I mean, our, actually our spidey senses on recognizing and whether that's an Amy Winehouse or a Billie Eilish or a Michael Jackson, right? I mean, we, we, we know when somebody's got the juice, right? And, and absolutely people will, will gravitate towards it, but we often overwhelm those people and load them up with completely unsustainable psychic energy, which, you know, Robert Johnson, the Jungian psychologist calls it the golden shadow, right? Like, so they're that amazing, but I couldn't be. So it's not the dark shadow of like, I'm a miserable, selfish, transactional fucker, but I can't own that. So I'll make you that person, you know, and I'll get absolutely apeshit when I see those qualities in you. It's the opposite, right? It's that we, we weirdly sort of collapse into family dynamics like mother, father, whatever savior, whatever it would be. And we puke our gold onto that person. And, and, and that person, the critical mistake that many otherwise talented or well-intentioned 
let's call, we'll call them avatars, right? Folks who have kind of stepped up and beyond the human condition. Many of them make the mistake of, I'm strong enough to take your gold. So lay it, lay it on my neck. Is, is that grabbing the one ring of power? Yeah, it can, yeah, yeah it, it's, I'm that. Like, thank, I will believe the hype. I'll believe the press clippings, clippings. I will actually accept and acknowledge and maybe even encourage you to see me that way. But the moment that dynamic is in play, it's only a matter of time. No matter how strong that person is, and they can hold it for a while, no matter, it's only a matter of time before all the weight of all that gold drops them to their knees and takes their community with them. And so that's why you, I mean, that's a reason why you see all of these otherwise really promising movements, you know, that start out and it's all, you know, it's, it's like that, it's like Boogie Nights, it's like that Johnny Depp film Blow, you know, you know, there was that kind of genre of films where they all kind of tracked the 60s to 70s to 80s and it was all super fucking fun in the late 60s and early 70s. It was like great soundtracks and everybody's smoking weed and hanging out and beaches and this and that and then like, and then comes cocaine and heroin and AIDS and everything goes, you know, everything goes tits up. And it's kind of been that way for many ecstatic communities. And there's a, there's a low level explanation, which accounts for like the heaven's gates and the nexiums and things like that, right? This sort of stuff that's been on HBO and Netflix lately, which is, oh, that person really was kind of a, like a whack nut and a shyster. And they really were just kind of gaming the system and, and, and extracting from vulnerable people what they needed. But there's a, there is a different category of, you know, arguable adepts, people who were really actually had meaningful insight and whether that's Aleister Crowley, Adi Da, Osho, et cetera, right? Some folks that without a doubt, if you really closely study and don't get squeamish or judgy, you know, if you actually get it, you're gudgy, you know, you can, you can look at these guys and you're like, oh shit. Now they were, they were absolutely onto something. And by, even if you just kind of take all the eyewitness accounts and like cut them in half or take them by a tenth, like they had some extra juice, some unusual thing. And that's precisely why people gathered around them in the first place. And it's only later in the game that things turn and things get exceptionally dark. And, and that to me feels like it, that, is a dy- that is a dynamic of the social physics. It's like what we do as tribal primates, <laughs> right? So we, we puke up our gold, we give away our agency and center, and then we overload that person in the center with too much power. And that's the Lord Acton, you know, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts, absolutely. But then the next line is even more interesting. He says, great men are almost always bad men. Right? So the question is, is how do we go from looking for the second coming and constantly putting someone up on the pedestal, but eventually dragging them into the pit and actually start facilitating and self-initiating ourselves and each other into the umpteenth coming where you're like, hey man, everybody's waking up. And what do we do now when once you've woken up, it's not time to start an Instagram page, write an autobiography and hit the workshop circuit at Esalen. You know, like, let's just say this is the next phase of human development and more of us are getting here than ever and more of us are needed to be living and acting and creating from here than ever. So let's get on with it. I can't tell you how many people that I've met who have had an awakening and are ready to turn it into a brand. 
And oh. um, but it, it's it's so it's so normal right now. It's sort of like we're we're living in an age of personal brands, and many of us grew up seeing like movie stars and rock stars, and oh, I want to be that. I want to have that. I want to be seen in that way. And then now with social media and Instagram, especially, that's kind of a democratized access to the illusion of fame. And so we get these insights. We want to like make a brand, but in reality. And, and what I mean by wanting to make a brand too is like people genuinely want to help others, but they see the avenue of helping others through a brand. So it's sort of like, well, I've had this awakening. I want to help other people. The best way I can help other people is by talking about my journey, mm-hmm. talking about my stuff. And what you're, what you're saying in this idea of this umpteenth coming, bringing everyone along with us, it's something totally different. It's not, let me show off how you know, awake I am in a way that helps you out. It's a different access point. So what is what is the difference? If if someone's listening has had a kind of waking up experience where and they want to share it and they see the avenue for them being to create a brand or to be the leader of a movement or mm-hmm. whatever, what should they be doing instead? Yeah, just 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 don't. Just do us all a fucking favor and don't. You know, in fact, I think it was Tom Billy. Somebody said it's like here's the secret to becoming a, a worldwide influencer, right? Find the thing that lights you up. Disappear for 10 fucking years. Learn it deeply. Show up a decade from now. And maybe you will have what you need to be a thought leader. I mean, the number of times I've heard people tell the story with a straight face and no self-consciousness and no shame or embarrassment of like, yeah, I was first exposed to breath work, ayahuasca, vipassana, fill in the blank, six months ago, 12 months ago real veteran, real total OGs, two years ago, and now I'm teaching, facilitating workshops. You're like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, slow your roll forever. The very fact that you've had such a glancing inquiry into what is lifetimes of humble apprenticeship and have already it has occurred to you to grab the ring, seize the fucking mic, and be holding forth for people behind you. I mean, you see that shit on Instagram all the time of like, you only need to be 10% ahead of the people you're coaching. And, it's, you know, or you don't need to be good. I've, I heard this one lately. You, you know, how can you coach somebody um, that's more accomplished and talented than you are? And the answer was like, and we'll show you how with this $8,000 workshop. And it's like, that is heinous. That is anathema to lineage to apprenticeship to humility in the face of the mystery to do ethical responsibility as a leader and a guide i mean you don't go to rei buy yourself a puffy north face jacket you know go go tromp halfway up mount shasta in the summer and then open up a himalayan guiding fucking outfit you'll kill people you don't go swimming in a you know surfing in a wave pool and then buy a jet ski and go to maui and start towing people into jaws for money you know like if you look at communities of practice in the outdoor and adventuring world, there are lifelong apprenticeships. There are pecking orders. There are the locals. There are the masters. You go and learn because you're, you're facing Kali. You're facing Mother Nature in some of her most profound, beautiful, and lethal aspects. And it's the old thing. that you know, There are old mountaineers, pilots, dry divers. There are bold ones, and there are no old bold ones. Right, The humility of repeat exposure and apprenticeship is a non-negotiable. It's just that in the spiritual space, it's all in, under the skin. It's all non-falsifiable. So what you do, you know, the number of likes, if I've got a blue check and a million likes on Instagram, I must be the real deal. And so 
the spiritual marketplace has been fundamentally captured and perverted and distorted beyond all recognition in our realm of social media, selfish, selfie, digital narcissism and influencer culture. And, and it needs to stop because the challenge is, is that you would think, oh, well, this is an open source meritocratic you know, medium and, and, and may the best ideas win or whatever and consumers can just decide and choose and it's on them. Well, it's not really because you've got a lot of desperate, sad, decompensated, underinformed folks hoping, hoping, hoping for a shot at salvation. And so the, the smoother tongued, the social proof is ass backwards and upside down. The, the notion of validity and depth and exposure of, of, is this person a trustworthy and safe guy to take me through, you know, this kind of terrain? It's, it's a, a children's crusade on many levels. And, and so two things, one, you said, hey, a lot of folks post COVID are thinking about living in community, like and just, just want to flag on the play for every single friendly business model, which is like, hey, we're all going to live in a community because we're super groovy and we're going to be like the star seed, you know, creators of the new, the, the new Eden. And we all typically have at least one or two tech bros or crypto whales who we're, you know, who we've buddied up to who are going to be bankrolling this whole thing because the rest of us are flat fucking broken between Tulum and Bali and Burning Man. And we're all going to cozy up around this thing and they're going to buy land for us, but they're going to, they swear it's all going to be communal and they're not actually going to really be the owners. So this is all super groovy. And then what are we going to do until Armageddon hits? Well, we're going to open up personal growth retreat and workshop because we've all done so much personal growth and learning that in fact, the best thing we can do is monetize it to the fucking muggles until the wheels come off. And to that, I would just say, well, A, take a number. There's literally thousands of those fucking projects all ginning up with pretty much identical blueprints. And B, take a look at Aslan, Hollyhock, Omega Institute. Take a look at the OG you know, personal growth and retreat centers. See how many of them have actually stably locked on to a sustainable business model and have decades of brand recognition and proximity to airports and access and prime real estate and all the things. And then just roll the, you know, run the numbers on how realistic is it that as conditions and spending money and discretionary income and all these things degrade around the world, that yours is going to be one of the ones that thrives from scratch with quite possibly no deep wisdom or lineage to be drawing from other than the scattershot cafeteria sampling of its, you know, over-optimistic founding members. We're still very much in this, this conversation of how can we help? Mm-hmm. How can we help bring others across a certain threshold? We talk about sort of democratizing this Promethean fire mm-hmm. and this umpteenth coming. So building retreat centers is not the answer. Personal brands are not the answer. Uh-huh. Is psychedelic medicine in part the answer? Is there, what is the way that we <laughs> yeah. can help others? Because I know you speak a lot on psychedelic medicine. Psychedelic medicine is how a lot of these non-ordinary states are being kind of injected into mainstream culture as mm-hmm. we speak, starting with ketamine, which is obviously a, a kind of an interesting one to start with, but ultimately will include MDMA, mm-hmm. psilocybin. Is that part of how we bring more and more people, especially the least among us, across a threshold of, of understanding and awareness and, and reset brainstem so that mm-hmm. they have less trauma, yeah. so that they're more able to achieve their dreams. That's what I really want to get at here is like, okay. what, what can we do to help in a tangible yeah. way? Well, I mean, so far I've been kind of in the, in the disabusing of preconception 
trip. You know, like that, like in your, in my answers to your questions, it's been like, it's not that smack. It's not that smack. It's not that either smack. Right. But I'm, I'm doing that in the hopes of creating a pattern interrupt for listeners. So you'd be like, oh shit. Okay. Yeah. There are actually, there are cracks in the thing we're swimming in, you know, to make some metaphor. Right. But this is not all quite right. But the way that seems to me like ideal would, let's just run this thought experiment. What I would pose if we were engaging in the act of culture architecture, like how would we design vibrant, anti-fragile transformational culture going forward? It would be a, you know, I think there's a, there's a decent case to be made that the worst people are doing all the best drugs. So, <laughs> right. Just back off all the narcissistic Instagram lifestyle coaches and sensation seekers. Just, you know, you guys don't get to do them anymore. And we actually want to be selecting because, because folks who have been chasing the brass rings of material success, they're doing it for egoic material reasons. But then you get that next level of people who have been like, oh, I'm in, you know, I did do that. I did a stint of that. I burned out in my prior career or life. Now I'm into yoga massage retreats, psychedelics, consciousness expansion, but it's still about me. And for a long time, I think it was, a, it was a fair assumption that those folks are the furthest along, right? The people who are deeply into all things consciousness, let's just say. But I kind of think that that can, for many of those folks, it's, it is a total dead end. It doesn't ever get to the mountaintop. And that's the 80-20 thing you were talking that's about. That's the 80-20 thing. It's also just the in service of what, right? Am I using this to, to remove my sense of exceptionalness or specialness or uniqueness? Or am, I, or am I actually, even unintentionally, further inflaming or engorging that ego? I've just swapped out Brooks Brothers suits for mala beads and linen. And if I had my choice, right, I would actually want to be pivoting entirely to people who have already self-selected in their life for service and construction and creation. So farmers, carpenters, nurses, midwives, teachers, firefighters, right, anybody, right, who has said, however they chose their life path, it wasn't about me, 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 me. It was about, huh, I want to be instrumental in this life. I want to move matter in tough or challenging directions because it's needed, because somebody needs to do this. And I think that, I mean, I was watching that show Yellowstone. It's got Kevin Costner in it. It's, it's kind of this series of like this Montana ranching family. And there was this one scene where a couple of the characters go into a Montana bar and it's a city slicker guy from LA who's looking to like turn it into the Yellowstone club and put up, you know, luxury buildings. And he gets the shit kicked out of him by, by a bunch of cowboys because he doesn't know this kind of honor culture that's in that bar. And, it's, and you look and I, and, and I got such a strong hit of like, oh, fuck, I get the flyover states. Like I grok MAGA rallies because these are the people, these are the plumbers and the ranchers and the tow truck drivers and the oil rig guys and the, you know, and, and the cattlemen. And like, they put food on plates, they build shit, they fix stuff when it's broken. They actually are operating inside the 3D world. If we think of ourselves, you know, like if you think of knowledge workers like, or, or, or like Bitcoin traders, you're like, what the fuck are we actually doing? What are we doing? Like all of this is just, we're just trading in hyper objects, in abstractions. And somehow and perversely, we get paid more to do that than the fucking salt of the earth folks that are actually keeping the wheels on society. And so just, just like for a moment, 
right, to kind of get past the divisions and the culture wars and appreciate that, that the honor of, you know, old-fashioned honor culture and the reality of moving things in 3D that's hard. I mean, during Katrina, and this is, you know, Burners Without Borders did a big stint down there. And I remember, and they went to some towns in Mississippi, like it wasn't New Orleans and it wasn't the places they were getting news crews and that kind of stuff. They were anonymous towns that had just been leveled by the hurricane. And instantly, like the mayor of this one town ended up shitting the bed, couldn't do a fucking thing. He'd just been this elected official who was seeking power and acknowledgement right? But the guy who ended up being the backbone of their recovery efforts was the dude who owned the hardware store who had generators and backhoes, right? And was, and was like, okay, folks, <laughs> you know, like this is, what, this is what we need to do and we know how to do it. And so my, my sense there is that if we wanted to, I mean, this was, this was several tangential points to come back to your central question, which was how would we build it? And I think how we would build it is way less psychedelics and journeying and personal growth for the people already engaged in that stuff and a little and, and somewhat more introduction to the folks that never touch those things or have any exposure to it and so you know if you take a look at like a bell curve distribution you might say hey 10 percent of the population should never engage in psychedelics or transformational technologies of you know ec ecstasy period because they have mental health family history addictions abuse or maybe dark triad personality traits they're narcissists, they're psychopaths, they're, they're Machiavellian. They shouldn't actually be amplifying anything that they do, right? And there's been lots of studies on that. Like, don't teach EQ to sociopaths. They'll just become better sociopaths, right? It's not all sweetness and light, right? So 10% of the population should never do it. 80% middle of the bell curve should perhaps only have those kinds of profound experiences, you know, at initiatory rites of passage through their life. And you, and you were talking times. about rites of passage into adulthood, marriage, and death. Those are the three. Th those I'm would be three easy ones. I mean, I'm totally open to any other different suggestions, but for sure those, right? And then maybe only 10% should be sort of, you know, psychonauts going back to that well more often than a handful of times in their lives to actually kind of map and explore that terrain and bring through those insights on behalf of the collective. And so just that alone really recalibrates. There's a a whole bunch of people that are never having any of these experiences and would benefit substantially by having them woven into their lives. But then there's the whole bunch of people gate crashing that 10% where the psychonauts right, that actually should back way the fuck off because they don't have the capacity, the discipline, the cognition, the emotional maturity, the sense of ethics and service and responsibility that one ought to have to be reliable cartographers of that domain. Well, Jamie, I am willing to back off. <laughs> Ever since our, you know, our conversation where you invited me to do the wilderness first responder training, I've been thinking a lot about this. Uh -huh. And I'm willing to give you a Pareto effect on my ability to back off of that 10%. So I'll back off of that 10% of Psychonaut 80%. And you know, I, what I'm getting at, I'm being silly, but what I'm getting at is I think that we have to be realistic about people's drive to glamour and feeling special. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's not what you're outlining is, I think, how we must shift. Mm -hmm. And there are people, and frankly, I'm one of those people who feels the, the pull of that ontological addiction or mm -hmm. the, the pull of like the glamour of the adventure. And I think that it's about, there's like a loving shift there. You're great at like just laying down the smackdown. <laughs> and I think for a lot of folks listening, they're like, uh, like yeah, I kind of yeah. am that person, but I don't want to be, but I also, but well, I well, like here's it. The both, here's the both end, right? So 
if I had to literally wait between like a teenage rite of passage, marriage, which for me is decades in the past, rearview mirror, and then death, not yet, right? I would crack up. I would become a hardened, calcified, fibrillating mess of stress, tensions, grief, pain, all the things. So take what I said, like that bell curve of 10%, 80%, 10%, merely as a thought experiment. Like perhaps, like if you, if you were going to create a culture like that. But the reality is, look, 10% of people, only 10% getting to do this more than a handful of times is still 35 million people in the United States alone. That's a lot, that's a fuck ton of people, right? So like we could even just say, you know, anybody who's listening to this is, is probably already in that 10%. And let's grant that 10% because you asked earlier, like, hey, what are the, how would you, put together respiration, embodiment, sexuality, substances, and music into some form of practice. And the simplest description that I could offer people is where we are, I guess my, my biggest critique is on heroic dose macro sacraments, blowing ourselves to smithereens every other weekend. And thinking right. that that's going to land us into yeah. this triumphant, transcendent hero space. Exactly. And that I would say is you know that that is a fool's fucking errand. I agree. At this right? point in my, I agree with that. At this point, I've have been in that space, but right. I definitely feel like that that's that's ultimately a dead end. Well, and also just I mean, objectively watch watch the data set. How many folks are actually you know in like durably and authentically and helpfully waking up stably in those scenes? Right, you see the endless party, and it rotates seasonally around the world. But you know, it's pretty much more of the same, and typically ends in overcooked. Right, it, it almost always ends up in decadence and decay <laughs> if you pursue it far enough. So let's just say that like we're really good and probably doing too much macrodosing. Right, we're decent, but can always get better at the microdosing. Meaning, like, not literally microdosing psilocybin or LSD, but like the small practices, the daily practices, the meditation, the breath work, the yoga, the body work, all those things. And we could almost, you can almost forever get better at that, right? How do we stay present and current? And how do we tune and hone our bodies and our brains to be the most vibrant, aligned, resilient vessels for our awareness and our being, right? But the honking great blank spot on our map which this book, the entire Alchemist cookbook is intended to fill, is the meso dose, the meso sacrament, the middle ones. Because we're good at shooting the moon, right? But it takes forever to put all the pieces back together and we're often getting all the signals and, and, and the images gobbled and distorted. And what we really need is, what do I do once a week? What do I do once a month? What do I do once a season, right? In between those blow out the pipes adventures. And that's where hedonic engineering comes in. That's where using less rocket fuel more deliberately can get us helpful insights and can actually maintain the momentum of our transformation instead of binge purge, binge purge. Right. So, cause like, I mean, take, you know, take an ayahuasca trip to Peru, you go down there and, you know, some people are signing up for things that are mind-boggling to me you know like i was down there for two weeks and we did nine sessions or something like that you're like holy fuck like how are how are you holding that all together or retreats in mexico or underground doctors that are prescribing mdma plus ketamine plus psilocybin with a finishing it all off with a 5-meo journey all in you know all in a 12-hour 
you know, $5,000 session with somebody, you're like, good God, you know, like what could you possibly hold from drinking from the fire hose that, you know, that strongly or deeply. So hedonic engineering is to say, it's, it's much more like the ideal of, I mean, there's so many different metaphors for it, but like a potter's wheel is one, right? That notion of a heavy stone wheel that you start kicking and it takes a lot of effort for those first several kicks. You're going from zero to moving and that takes a fuck ton of effort. So that's the equivalent of our blow out the pipes Burning Man, I experience whatever it would be. Like I'm stone cold, waking state, conscious, 21st century, normal, pain body, human, right? And then kerboom, right? I've got a huge amount of voltage and I'm turning that into motion. And then most of us just come home, forget about it. And that, that and those initial kicks on the potter's wheel just stall back out again and we go back to zero. So then the next time we need another, another slug of rocket fuel to get it going again. Instead, if we actually said, okay, we're going to have those once a year deep, you know, explosive experiences, that gets the kick wheel moving. And then we layer in progressively milder interventions at the quarterly, at the monthly, and at the, at the weekly level. Then we get to the point where now we're just flicking our foot on that same kick wheel right? And it's zooming. It's going really fast. Now, now I can shape clay. Now I can create things with that momentum. Instead of going from zero to the speed of light, back to zero to the speed of light and getting burned, we actually get to create steady state momentum by scaling our practices. And so the simplest, oh, and I say the simplest, a simple and helpful way, particularly if you're in relationship, although this can be done as a solo practitioner for own body awareness, orientation, just learning the mechanics, is a sexual yoga of becoming. And that is where you would combine breath work, combine, and, and particularly some quite powerful and effective gas-assisted breath work and other ones that are truly transcendent in their, in their capacities, deliberate sexuality and cultivation of our orgasmic and arousal system as well as just sensory integration to our whole body, deliberate programming with music and skillful layering in of less volatile compounds and substances with more precise stacking or interventions. And so those can give you little death experiences right? Once a week, like, oh shit, I, this is my Sabbath practice. Like I just went through five day work week. I just did all the things, the grindy, grindy stuff of work and life and responsibility and family. And holy moly, I, I accumulated a little PTSD, right? Like I'm a little jacked up on Fridays. My, most people like to go and drink alcohol to, you know, burn it off on Friday afternoons. But instead a Sabbath practice where you reconnect and refeel, like literally get back to clear head, open heart in our body. And those middle practices, I truly, truly believe are the missing link. So it's not that we trip balls every weekend because I need to, or once a month because I'm afraid I'm going to forget. We actually get these middle practices where we're like, oh, right tool, right task, right time. I can deploy this and I can recalibrate myself. Because the other thing when you, you talked about letting go of the... I guess the fantasy of perfectibility, of spiritual attainment, that there is an, there's another... There's another assumption, which is that the super groovy state of consciousness is the desired one and is a steady state in itself. So if we're like, oh, 21st century normal, like beta waves, you know, stress hormones, boo, bad, you know, like theta waves and super groovy, or maybe this delta thing you've been talking about, yummy, good. You're like, no, 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 it's just, it's a spectrum. 
And I think it's fair to say that a 21st century Western working definition of enlightenment, right, just purely a pragmatist definition, isn't, isn't that I've dropped my ego or I've dropped my body mind or I'm communing with my guardian angels or the Pleiades or some, some such fuck nuttery, but it's just pragmatic enlightenment is the ability to match state to task nothing more or less right and what that means is is like when it's time to commune with god i want to be empty an empty and a humble vessel you know sitting on the mountaintop but when it's time to comfort my squalling child in the middle of the night i want to be a compassionate mammal parent and when i get jumped in a bar fight i want to be a fierce fucking warrior to protect the people i'm with Right? And when I'm pouring over a spreadsheet to build that intentional community and raise the capital and funds, I want to have highly functional, high executive functioning beta wave activity and financial savvy. Right? I, we need full range. And to fixate on a specific zone simply because it's rare or precious or we haven't glimpsed it or we've fantasized about it doesn't mean that over-indexing and then camping out there is any less imbalanced than where we've been stuck all along. Right? So having micro practices, meso practices, and macro practices lets us get that kick wheel going, keeps us supple, broadens the sort of Overton window or the, the spectrum of the states and, and the states of consciousness that we can access. And then we become hedonic engineers, right? We go to, we, we orchestrate the state that is best matched to the task at hand. And then we become fluid and supple and much more effective. And that's what I mean about the notion of being homegrown humans and dropping the ego and not writing a book or, or starting a workshop or a personal brand about these things. You're just like, fucking, let's just get over it and just realize this is our birthright. And these and access to more information and access, which is supported by foundationally like neurophysiological states. Like if you line yourself up in this particular way, you are more likely to have those sorts of experiences or access to that domain of information, we just broaden it. We just become literate in our states of consciousness and then use them appropriately without excess horn tooting or fanfare. Okay, so now we arrive at this idea of being a homegrown human. Mm -hmm. This book has so much actionable material, particularly through the whole first part of the book. We're talking about what's going on in the world. We're talking about what's going on in ourselves and how we work with our own states of consciousness. We talk about communities and how to avoid getting in a cult. And then after all of that, there is such fun philosophical stuff right at the end of the book, including your own very tender exploration of themes in Christianity. There's some really beautiful biographical stuff that kind of comes in towards the end and, and quite tastefully, I feel. Um, <laughs> and the thing that really struck me the most personally, and we've talked a lot about this idea of a healing journey moving through not quite the idea of spiritual perfectibility, but like I got to move some like trauma chunks through my body. There's stuff I know I need to get out. And I think a lot of people listening have that. You arrive at the end, one of the things you arrive at is this, you know, this idea that you've spoken about in the book and elsewhere about being a homegrown human. And you have this beautiful diagram called the Jesus fish. DNA Jesus fish. The yeah. DNA Jesus fish, <laughs> pardon me. Can you describe the DNA Jesus fish in a visual way so people can imagine it and I can put it in the show notes? 
Yeah, I mean, basically, if you've ever seen the bumper stickers on the back of minivans with just that little simple fish that, you know, starts with, it's, it's like two intersecting arcs, you know, that cross to make the tail. That's the kind of, that's the ichthys, which, which was the kind of ancient Christian symbol that then got popularized in the sort of 70s and, and 80s. And typically, it's, it's been adopted by sort of evangelical Christians in the U.S., right? But what happened is it was actually... It was a conversation I was having with Julie, my wife, at that very kitchen table. And we were having a complete knockdown, drag out fight. It was like, it was, you know, one of, like, we don't often fight, but when we do, it's for real. And, and it was one of those. And it was basically, she was, she was still bummed or frustrated by trauma, by wounds that had happened in the first, like, three years of our relationship, which was back in college. So like we've, we've grown up together, right? So this is way down the stack. You know, it's like on the dirt road that then got paved over, then then got a park and condos, you know, like it's like just in, in the psychoarchaeology of our lives, pretty ancient stuff. But nonetheless, it was still there, right? There was still a crack that we hadn't gone back and excavated down to and mended fully. And, and at the same time, I was like, but hey, like, we've already won, like in our magical mythic life, right? In, 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 our, in our partnership, we have been blessed with glimpsing and, and finding each other in magical realms that sort of redeem everything. You know, like how on earth could you second guess where we've ended up based on the lumpy, clumpy beginnings, right? And so that was the nub. That was, that was, the, that was the absolute tension in our conversation. And I was like, Jay, you can choose to get pulled down to our biographic life and rewind the tape back to a moment of fracture and say, I'm broken here, therefore we're broken here and we can't experience. Or we can be up on our mythic life, high-fiving and hugging, right? For the blessings, right? That we've, we've been lucky enough to glimpse. And even as I was describing, I was like, so you choose. And of course, my tendency was to be like, come on up to the fucking mythic life. Like, like this, d- d- don't, don't drag us down into the mud of the past. Let's be up here. But even as I said it, I was like, ah, oh, shit, that's not quite right, is it? Because that would mean bypassing or escaping. Yeah, that's exactly right? bypassing. Right? So, so I was like, oh, well, maybe it's, it's something else. Maybe we kind of bend, maybe we bend this mythic life downwards and maybe we raise our biographic life upwards and that's kind of where the the shape of the jesus fish took place and i literally like grabbed a sharpie and was writing on the back of a napkin i was like here like look and so so the sense was is like oh just if you think hey the nose of the fish right is our birth and where the tail crosses each other that's our that's our death right so we're all born and we're all going to die and that downward arc right is arguably our biographic lives, right? Birth to and, death. And this is a lot of like when we think of our childhood trauma and the things that we're, that we're stuck in. That's Adver- that. Adverse childhood events. And, and, and trauma happens along that arc, right? We just get hit. And it's adverse childhood events. It's adverse life events. It's divorce. It's illness. It's bankruptcies. It's all the things that suck and are scary and sometimes overwhelming. But then if we're lucky enough, we'll have a breakthrough peak experience. You know, typically it, the, the ones that we remember the most are the ones that kind of kick in in adolescence. It could be the first time we went and got hammered with friends and stayed out all night or we went to a rock show and our favorite band just blew the lid off it and everybody's got their lighters going, you know, or that kind of thing. Or it could be our first love and we actually suddenly feel connection and feelings that we've never felt before, all that kind of stuff. So you have those first few peak experiences and for 
the first few, they're just punctuated equilibrium, right? They're just an event. And you don't know what it was. You loved it. It was super valuable. But you don't know necessarily how to get there or come back. So I actually have a paragraph that you wrote that's about to describe what you're about to describe. Oh, sweet. Read it. And so I want to read it yeah, yeah. because it's one of the things that I, that I was really enjoying, which is, as it's, it's like teed up from what you've just said. And then you go on to write, once we've had a few of these breakthrough experiences, the dots on the upper arc, the next time we return to Kairos, which is deep time, which we access through these peak experiences. The next time we experience anamnesis, which is the forgetting to forget, anamnesis, and remember what's more deeply true. We also remember we've been here before. The funny thing is that despite all the newness, there's something about all of it that feels, well, the only way I can put it is that it's like coming home. And that's Anne Shulgin, uh, therapist and partner of the noted psychedelic chemist Sasha Shulgin. As if there's some part of me that already knows knows this territory and is saying, oh yes, of course, almost a kind of remembering. Once we connect the dots backwards and forwards in time, we start to see the beginning of a trend. The faintest outline of the top arc reveals itself to be the plot of our mythic lives, the mirror image of our biographical life, the best of what is in us. Here, we're not living lives of quiet desperation. We're thriving, inspired, powerful. And I love the idea that these two arcs are mirroring each other. And so it's not about getting stuck in our biographical story. It's about living into our mythic lives and allowing what occurs in our biographical experience to then kind of inform our mythic lives so that as those arcs kind of accelerate towards each other, we can see that link. And I think the key is to do that. That's what I got from this. I think the key is to do that without over-mythologizing our lives, Mm -hmm. to actually look at these mythic moments and these biographical moments as inverse, but to not then build these complex stories which can then bend in the direction of conspirituality or can bend in the direction of narcissism, but to actually honor these mythic moments, see the inverse biographical moment, and then watch the two of them come together as we continue to do our work. And that's something that stuck with me Mm. actually most in your book in terms of my relationship to what I'm trying to heal in myself while trying to get over myself so that I can be in better service to the world because the biographical stuff continues and you don't get to just that spiritual bypassing kind of tap out and be like, I'm awakened now. So now I'm like fully in service. Like you still have the mucky muck. You still have the mud that the lotus blossoms out of. But I think that this like DNA Jesus fish (laughs) way of looking at things, much like the whole book, it kind of strips out some of the mythologizing. Mm -hmm. It is universal, although the texture is unique to the individual. It is kind of a universal thing. And you can kind of just, much like the hedonic engineering, not quite set it and forget it, but you can kind of look at it as a kind of structure and not get so consumed with it and then have so much more bandwidth to then focus on the task at hand, which as you've said, is to build things, make art, <laughs> help out. Yeah, and, and there's, there's, there's three pitfalls, right? So that, that's the potential setup, right? We have our biographic lives where we take traumatic hits. And then if we're fortunate enough to have an, a, enough breakthrough experiences, we start seeing a, a plot line to our mythic life. The first easy way to fuck this up is spiritual bypassing, right? We're like, oh, I like me at full strength. I like this mythic life of mine. I don't like my basement you know, apartment or my fucked up relationships or my shitty friends, and I'm going to quit that. 
I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go off to the jungle. I'm gonna change my name. I'm gonna move. I'm gonna get my yoga certification. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and make my life. I'm just gonna create a, a schizoid split between all the hard, tough stuff in my life and my new highest best self. So that tends not to work out very well. The other is a version of spiritual materialism, which goes back to the Instagram influencer thing, which is I pop up here, and rather than bowing down in humility and service. I've still got enough ego online that I'm like, oh shit, this is money, <laughs> right? I could sell, I can flog this to the muggles back home, and I'm coming back from my IA retreat to do download your wealth codes at our next ayahuasca retreat workshop. You know, three months from now or whatever it is, right? And there's that move of like, oh, I see there is something profoundly valuable. I see something absolutely magic and attractive up here, and my seeking, searching self is looking to skim it and take it back down into 3D and flog it like I'm the originator of this thing or a master of it or a whatever. And that's a super duper problematic end run. And then the next one is like, let's say we don't get tricked by either of those two and we actually start living more and more into this mythic life of ours. And then we end up out of phase or out of time. It's a little bit like how when divers go down really deep and they come back up and they have the bends, right? They have decompression sickness. We actually have chronological dis distortion because if we've been spending time in Kairos or sacred time where everything is perfect and present in the deep now, and then we come back to Kronos or chronological clock time, especially with our family, spouses, long-term partners, basically anybody that's been with us intimately enough and for long enough that we've probably hurt them and potentially deeply, we will, have, we will have our leading edge of mythic breakthrough. Like I realize I'm a child of God, I'm whole and I'm pure. I don't, I, I don't need to apologize for my past. I've reconciled and integrated and I'm living forward from here. You know, like that kind of a sort of epiphany experience. And we come back to our closest people and we're usually fired up to talk to them and share the good news. And they are often not as stoked as we are. Right? They're often like, yeah, kind of saw this last month. Yeah, isn't this kind of like when you got back from Burning Man? Yeah, I'll wait and see. And quite often we'll be like, oh, no, no, you don't understand. This is totally, this is everything different. Like I'm not that old guy anymore. I'm this guy. I'm new, I'm reborn. You don't understand how profound the experience was. And then quite often they'll dig in their heels and be like, yeah, I'm not fully feeling it. And so our leading edge gets mismatched with their bleeding edge. And that's the places in the past where we have hurt them or haven't been fully in integrity or reliable. And often that can then lead to a sneaky backdoor spiritual bypass where at some point if we're like, you're just not, you're not acknowledging my true self, you're not acknowledging my growth. I think I just might be more committed to spirituality and growth than you are, all those kind of things. And we actually shunt we scapegoat onto the person who's holding the wounds of our fragmented selves. Don't, you know, we aren't willing to atone and make full amends. And we then put it onto them, right? It's not that I have disowned blind spots, it's that you won't lean into your growth. And we quite often trash relationships because we're unwilling to come back and, you know, get off our high horse and shovel some shit. So if we can navigate that tricky landscape, don't succumb to spiritual bypassing. Don't get seduced by you know the spiritual materialism of I can become the, the marketer of this or the commodifier of it. And we anticipate and just live into the leading edge, bleeding edge, time slippage that happens between our latest breakthrough and the legacy 
of trauma in our relationships. Then we get to the tail of the fish. We get to that intersection. And that you know, can be, if we do nothing else, it's our death. Right? That's the, that's the off, offing of the circle. But if we can do it deliberately, if we can integrate the insights of our peak experiences and raise the stage of our biographic life, that's how we get to that crossroads again. And that's where a death rebirth experience can happen. And that's where, like, it's the Jimmy Stewart in A Wonderful Life where he's ready to kill himself and the angel comes and he comes back on, you know, he's like, oh my gosh, right? It's a wonderful life. Holy shit, everybody, I did make a difference, right? This matters. I love this life. Or Dorothy being like, fuck Kansas, you know, and going off on her whirlwind exp- experience of Oz and then coming back and going, oh shit, I see it now. I get it now. Or Ebenezer Scrooge, right? I mean, we, we, there's a gajillion of these stories of someone who leaves the world with contempt or distaste or a desire to get past it, to have the heroic journey, to realize, oh shit, there's no place like home. Oh shit, that life that I was treating so cheaply is actually more precious than I dreamed, right? That's, that's the moment where we get to become anthropos or homegrown human. And that's the moment that instead of seeking to bypass this life, we actually come back to it with full hearts, profound appreciation and courageous engagement. And anything shy of that, I think, is, is inadequate to the tasks ahead. And the idea is like, okay, so how do we get as many folks through that that, are, that choose it as possible so we can expand the, yeah, I mean, fundamentally, the, 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 <laughs> the Shambhala warriors, right, for the future. And so now we are at the crux of the conversation. There's so many things in this book that I would love to talk to you about, Mm. especially Mm -hmm. like the Infinite Game stuff. There's so much in this book. But what I think is most important for me personally and for many of the people who listen to this show, for those of us who have, we go to Burning Man, we've done ayahuasca, you know, Mm. the Bali thing, the whatever it is, and we're kind of waking up to the fact that our awakening is a little Mm self-absorbed and we want to help. And many of us, you were just saying, like, how many people who want to can we bring across the line? Mm -hmm. And earlier in the conversation, you identified people who are already in roles of of service and whose lives are built that way, needing to have access to these experiences. Mm -hmm. So if we shed the egoic desire to build a brand and a a billion-dollar business, we let go of that energy. But we want to help. We want to include people. We want to help people cross this threshold. My question is... And I do want to kind of nod to whether we can make psychedelic medicine, because I think it will be the most accessible way that many people get into this. How do we, who are in this place, are like, okay, I want to help. What is the best way that we can help bring those people along the threshold without falling victim to this kind of spiritual narcissism, which is so prevalent in our communities? Do we become psychedelic therapists? Is that actually the best way? where would you direct an army of potential Peter Pans into actual service with the tools we've had from our own trauma healing, heroic journeys through peak experience to then come back and help enlist, become homegrown humans ourselves and help enlist others? Yeah, I mean, that's such a beautiful question. And, and it, it meshes with the core thesis of the book, which is how do we build an open source operating system for transformational consciousness and culture, right? Which means no tops down singular decisions, which means, right, that there's no single way. Like we need to light a thousand fires and 900 will go out in the storm, but a hundred will keep burning. We won't know from here which hundred they are, 
right? So we need all of us. Like, don't curse the darkness, you know, light a thousand fucking fires. So the simplest, I mean, there's all sorts of artsy-fartsy discussions of like discover your purpose and your inner dolphin and that kind of stuff. And, I, and I'm generally suspicious to most of them. Did you say inner dolphin? Mm-hmm. I want to discover my <laughs> inner dolphin. That sounds awesome. Yeah, exactly. But I think that the, the, a simple, simple way, at least what appears true for me, is find the intersection of your talent and your trauma, right? And know that there's, there's gold there. Because it's effectively like what, you know, our trauma is where we have felt the wound of the world most acutely, right? And for some, it could be animal rights. It could be childhood domestic abuse. It could be sexual slavery. It could be ecological habitat restoration. Just like where has your heart been broken by life and the world? And critically, where do you have the talent? Where do you have a specific skill set that gives you leverage to have asymmetric positive impact in that, in that domain, right? Because all of us, if we just open our awareness or, or our newsfeed, right, we can all be cracked open by the, the overwhelming amount of grief in the world, right? So there's like, you know, at that point, you have no ability to select, right? You're just like, fuck, right? But, the, in, but that Venn overlap of like, and now where do I have some capacity that's within my dharma, which is, with, you know, it's that notion of Thor's hammer, right? Like Thor, only Thor can lift that fucker. It's infinitely heavy to anybody else. Right? So what's our Thor's hammer? What's our Excalibur that we are the only ones that can pull that thing from the stone and wield it? And go do that. And the, you know, the good news, bad news is, is that there are only, I mean, in fact, Brett Weinstein, the biologist and his badass wife, Heather Haying, they've said that. They're like, and this was particularly around sort of millennial hipsters and that kind of stuff. She's like, he's like everybody's pl- pretending to be alphas. The, the cold, hard truth of it is there's precious few alphas in any tribal group. There's a whole bunch of betas playing fancy dress up. And so this idea that like the moment any of us have profound breakthrough experiences, we're supposed to grab the ring, the spotlight, the, the microphone and the throne is I think wildly over-indexed. Like let's put our heads down. Let's be in humble service. And you talked about, you know, the folks that are not part of the conscious community. Do we all become psychedelic therapists and go help them? No, no. I think build stuff that's compelling. Build strange attractors, build strong attractors, build beautiful attractors for a straightforward human life well lived. I, I'm, I'm under convinced that there's anything that we need next that if our grandmas on their front porches and their rocking chairs couldn't sign off on it, we've probably overthought it. You know, we're probably being too clever. And so it's, it's literally, I mean, and, and this notion of like, we all need to migrate to global centric consciousness, right? We all need this big one world, we're all human, all that kind of stuff. I even made a case for it in the book because I believe it. And I also believe the opposite. I think it's, it's too late for that. I think we had a half century coming out of World War II of infinite personal growth exploration you know, from the 60s till now. We had the best lie of the ball any humans ever have ever had to try and pursue the good life. And I would say we fundamentally shat the bed, right? So the simplest thing that we could do now as far as just triage right, if what, what do we have the time and the resources to accomplish reliably is actually a regression to healthy tribalism, right? And, and the only healthy tribalism I'm aware of, because I mean, if you think about far left, far right culture wars right now, we're getting all sorts of meaningfully unhealthy tribalism, right? So race, language, religion, ideology, those are all unhealthy tribalisms. But a healthy tribalism is bioregional. Where do we live? Who are our neighbors? 
what are the sacred sites? What are the watersheds? Where does our food come from? You know, and like just start by starting. And this doesn't mean go and buy one more patch of pristine semi-wilderness and set up a bunch of yurts and do yoga retreats, right? It might be like knock on the doors of your apartment in your city and let's start exploring food security and let's talk about water purity and quality and let's talk about you know energy and power redundancy and let's talk about education for our kids and work you know barn raisings and work projects like like let's roll up our sleeves and 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 you know and let's break bread once a week together and let's make music even if it's clunky and plunky because we're not all professionals you know let, let's do fourth of july parades and halloween picnics and you know like what the fuck like the stuff the simple ass stuff and that's actually where i think you know america has an abundant amount of like cultural flaws and faults and bugs in its programming which we're experiencing right now and a lot of the protests and marches and, and kind of crit- critical reassessment of who we are and where we've come from but a couple of things that I think are aces in our back pocket. We've always been a, a nation of multicultural seekers. We've always been pursuing cut out the middleman and give us direct experiential connection to the divine. And that's the great first and second great awakenings all the way to Burning Man, right? We've always been right antinomian seekers. We want to go taste it and feel it for ourselves. And we've been amazingly good at forging community together, right? And, and learning to create places of being. And, and so those would be my biggest, I mean, it's where I am, you know, like this may be the last lap I do on public outreach and that kind of stuff, because I, I feel increasingly. The, the, the book or this podcast? Well, I mean, I mean, this, this, this book, this podcast being one of the last ones that I'm doing on this circuit, is just kind of like, I can no longer in good conscience keep talking about stuff that I know needs to be done without spending more and more time starting the doing. I think that's the case for us all, especially as you outlined so well in this book, the urgency of time, you know, the urgency of time to like, okay, we know, we know where we need to go, but let's kind of like get a little bit of a, more of a clip to it. Yeah. And is, can I, can I just take an, another cut at the, the Jesus fish? Not, not specifically sure. on the details, but maybe, maybe this is a, a simpler, helpful way to think about it. And I, I didn't write it in the book because the book was full and I only heard about it from a inspired Harvard theorist uh, named Zach Stein about a month ago, but it clicked and it just explained everything, which was in the Kabbalistic tradition, there's three phases of ensoulment. So like, it's not just developmental, you know, psychological development. There's actually kind of what's your soul doing as you grow. And it goes from pre-tragic to tragic to post-tragic, right? And the pre-tragic is literally, we're in the womb. Everything's safe, warm, and secure. And, and then, you know, we get spat out into the world. The birth canal is compressed and scary and weird. And then the world is like harsh and bright and loud and cold and doesn't seem fair. And I don't understand it, right? And whether or not we, we could be born into a loving family and we could live, we could stay within the metaphorical womb all the way through college, all the way through getting my job at McKinsey or Goldman or, you know, or, or Google or whatever and collecting all the brass rings. But at some point, right, that pre-tragic life of safety, security, and infinite possibility that I can grow up to be president or an astronaut and I can find the Prince Charming or the Sleeping Beauty of my dreams and like I'm gonna, I get to live this best life of mine. Sooner or later, that gets ripped out of our hands and we run smack dab into the tragedy of the human experience, right? And that is typically the, none of this makes sense, right? I don't have a place. I'm a cosmic orphan bereft from the world. And many of us get stuck there. But if, you know, but a far smaller percentage of people, when they've shaped history, right, have persisted and they've made it to the post-tragic, which is not that 
I've learned the power of the secret or I've gone to my Awaken the Giant within and I'm now you know, hashtag crushing it and grinding and hustling and getting all the things I wanted. Not a regression to the pre-tragic, but a progression to the post-tragic where you're like, yes, this too. My heart has been broken open and I rise up singing. Mm, and, right? And that's that. the Mandela. That's the MLK. That's the entire... 19th to 20th century civil rights tradition, right? Which was deeply rooted in Baptist, Christianity, liberation, theology. If you listen to the gospels and the spirituals into the folk tradition, right? They all have that redemption song quality. It's what made Marley so powerful, right? It's, it's all the fucking things. It's like, I am going to testify to the broke openness of my experience and the human experience. And I'm going to fucking lay down this beautiful jam, and you could make a case that what we're seeing right now is a world in the sort of paroxysms, right? The fibrillations, the contractions of a bunch of folks getting the, their pre-tragic best lives ripped out of their hands. And then we get into the pain of the tragic and we're like, fuck this, I can't handle it. We either go to suicide and despair or sensation seeking and transcendence. But to come back to it and be like, oh, I'm, I choose this life. I, I become twice born. I'm no longer seeking to bypass the impossible conundrum of being alive and aware. And I actually come back and embrace it. Like that's the homegrown human. The homegrown human is the one who steps into that post-tragic expression and holds it as what MLK called soul force, right? Like that's that, that's that transformative power where we can meet physical force with soul force, right? That's when we have the chance to change the world. And, and to me, that's what we need more than anything right now is homegrown humans, post-tragic, saying, yes, this is fucking brutal and it's beautiful. It's the agony and the ecstasy, both forever and let's walk each other home. And if we can do that, right, like that's the force multiplier. And, you know, Erica Chenoweth at, at Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, right? I mean, she, this is the number that extension rebellion and lots of other activists and i think actually blm as well have have latched onto which was 3.5 percent of the population is required in order for non-violent social change or revolution and that was by studying like 20th century movements across the world and there's a lot of critiques as to whether that 3.5 percent holds up today whether or not we're into a much more complicated thing but let's just even just say we're probably not at three and a half percent yet. So let's get there as fast as we can and let's see how things look and feel from there. But like, let's shoot for that. That's like 10 million people in the United States. Can we get 10 million homegrown humans to be standing up and testifying? Right? And, and, it, and it, this, that old quote that is attributed to St. Francis, but probably wasn't, but he says, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words, right? So let's go all preach the gospel right? And shut the fuck up. Like there's plenty to do. We do not need to use words. In fact, they are the weakest version compared to, compared to good deeds and acts and service. So let's be homegrown humans. Let's build the better world now. Let's invite as many others into that possibility as possible. And let's forgive ourselves and each other so that we can get started on the work ahead. Well, I, I would say that words are still very helpful, considering especially the words you've written in this book. Mm. So this book is Recapture the Rapture, and I really feel like people in this festival psychedelic space of wanting to help and support would get an enormous value out of 
really the straightforward frameworks that you offer here. Mm-hmm. And I love it. And I, and I love the poetry in it. And I love the earnestness. And I love the personal aspects of your life that I got to learn through this book. Mm-hmm. And I feel increasing, I feel every time I talk to you, I said this to you when I was over here the other day, I always feel called up by you. I always feel called up. I think a lot of people feel that way. I mean, you're such a strong voice in psychedelic medicine, and I appreciate you very much. I appreciate what you're doing. And I feel much like last time, much much like the first time we spoke, and you said go do wilderness first responder training, and I and you did it. I actually did it. You fucking did it. I actually did it, and it was very helpful and quite transformative, in fact. So too, in reading this book, it's reorganized my relationship to my own spiritual path, healing journey, and really made me think more deeply about what it's all for. Mm-hmm. And for me, I've got stuff I want to heal and I want to move through, but to do what? And if you don't have that deeper purpose and service, you can get lost. And this book is such an incredible blueprint for being aware of where you can get lost, whether it's in a culty cult or whether it's in your own sort of myopic, narcissistic, spiritual bypassing and blueprints for making it simpler, pulling out all the sort of dramatic mythological stories that may not help you and actually showing up. So Jamie, I really appreciate your time being on my show, the work that you've done and this book. And uh, for those listening, if you've made it all the way through the podcast, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're probably going to end up reading this. <laughs> so reach out to us and let us know what you think. Jamie, how can people connect with you and reach out, with, reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, I think the, probably the, the simplest and most fun thing and, and what would be the, the most fulfilling, at least for me on this end, is, is seeing people actually wrap their heads around it and actually start using the toolkit. So to that end, recapturetherapture.com. There we, del- you know, we deliberately were like, fuck, we just wrote a book about open sourcing this toolkit, so we need to offer the tools. So there is a 65-page PDF that's free and downloadable, and it has all full-color infographics and kind of leads you through the story of the book and the, and the kind of challenges and choice points. There's also a whole book club template. So for like, I think it's seven weeks, you can just basically have a bunch of friends read the book together, and then there's one week with guided questions and everything on each section of the book, but then there's a death over dinner, a drugs over dinner, a sex over dinner, and a God over dinner, a series of just fun conversations. So it doesn't, I mean, it's all informed by the book content, but not specific like reading reports. And so those can become really fun, cool ways for you and a community, a core crew, to start wrapping your heads around a shared vernacular, the intention of the book. I mean, I hope it's engaging and I hope all the stories are fun and all that kind of stuff, but really it's to upload the OS and then start running stuff on the OS and start modifying it and creating new versions and permutations because you're one of the thousand fires. And we don't know which ones we're going to need, but if you get one that catches, then it's going to be share that far and wide because you guys have, you know, you've, you've discovered a piece of the solution. I love that. Jamie, thanks for coming back on my show. Fourth time on Life as a Festival. This was a, a deep and wide exploration this book recapture the rapture is there anything amidst all of the beautiful things that you've shared particularly on the themes we've discussed today is there anything you feel like we missed that's mm. like really just needs to get nailed home yeah so I just, I'll, i'd love to leave you leave folks with this because it's such a rad and crazy story and rick doblin shared it with me 
unbeknownst to that, I was actually writing about this all along. But as it turns out, like I'm sure most listeners are familiar with the Good Friday experiment back in 1962 at Harvard, where a bunch of seminarians for the, from the Divinity School were given psilocybin mushrooms, and then you know, and then a panel of experts couldn't distinguish between who was tripping versus who had a sort of quote-unquote authentic mystical experience, right? So we're all, we all know that story. But then Rick super casually was like, oh yeah, um, by the way, Howard Thurman was the minister who delivered the sermon on Good Friday, and we have an audio recording of it on the MAPS website. And I was like, what? Because I was already going to write about Howard Thurman, because he was this African-American mystic of the early 20th century, who was a complete inspiration to the entire civil rights movement, including Martin Luther King. And he had gone in 1935 to India. He was the first interfaith African-American ambassador from the United States to go and check out what Gandhi was up to. And Gandhi had shared this notion of satyagraha, which was truth force, right? And this whole idea of like super principled, nonviolent protest. And so Thurman took it and took it home. And he's like, well, satyagraha, that's a Sanskrit mouthful but let's, call, let's rebrand it. Let's call it Soul Force. So Howard Thurman was actually the originator of Martin Luther King's riffing on the term Soul Force. I'm like, fucking hey, that's fantastic. Awesome. But did not know that he was up at Boston College and he delivered the sermon to those tripping mystics. So I dug up the audio recording and got to listen to it. And just listen. And like the last 10 minutes are absolutely pure gold. So I just wanted to read this and leave everybody with this. In the closing minutes of an hour-long Good Friday sermon, in a chapel of tripping mystics, he told the story of hearing an anguished voice crying out, Forgiveness. I went out and searched and found a man in the throes of crucifixion. I said, I will take you down. I tried to take the nails out of his feet, but he said, Let them be for I cannot be taken down until every man and every woman and every child will come together to take me down. I said, but I cannot stand to hear you cry. What can I do? He said, go about the world. Tell everyone you meet that there's a man on the cross, a man on the cross. Tell everybody, everybody that you meet. That man on the cross is Anthropos. That cross lies at the intersection of Kairos and Kronos. A couple of thousand years ago, his realization was rare and remarkable. Today, it's required of all of us. It's this recognition of our divinity and our mortality that delivers us to our full humanity, every man, woman, and child, every homegrown human. Take out the nails, remove the thorns, forgive ourselves and each other, not to usher in the second coming, but to bring about the umpteenth coming. It's time to take him down. It's time for us to step up. Tell everyone. Tell everyone you meet. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, 
You can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.